0: Good morning, Sanctus Church, and I hope you've been impacted and inspired during this series of the icons of our faith. And we've been navigating through some very interesting symbols, some that are familiar to us and some that are not familiar. And actually, the symbol that we're going to look today may not be as familiar to all of us. So before we begin, why don't you join with me in prayer? God, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, come, restore, renew, revive. Jesus, we trust you and surrender ourselves today. In your name we pray, amen. I mentioned last week how Christian symbols and icons have meaning, memory, and motive. And so when you see an icon, its meaning is rooted in its theological and historical context. Then when you see an icon, it should trigger our memories to recollect and remember its meaning. And when you see an icon, it should not just be something you look at and say, that looks nice, it should motivate us into action. It should move us to do something with our lives. And so today we're going to explore the Cairo symbol, which quite possibly is the oldest monogram in Christianity with examples found on the walls in the catacombs where early Christians would gather and worship and pray and meet in secret. This symbol connects us to our sisters and brothers in the faith who've gone before us. I remember a few years back visiting Israel, and I was had a chance to visit the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the guy took us downstairs to the basement area, and as we were coming down the stairs on the wall, she pointed out to the markings, engravings, and symbols that were engraved on the wall by pilgrims of old. And all I remember is I put my hand and touched those markings and engravings, how You know, we were uh, connecting to pilgrims who lived a millennia ago who walked down these halls and engraved these symbols and icons, and it brought a a spiritual and, and, and a mystical connection to these people that I've never met before, but I know one day I will. And so when you see these ancient symbols, it should remind us about the historical connection that we all have with our sisters and brothers in the faith, this great cloud of witnesses that the writer of Hebrews talks about. And so in other words, though we're a 21st century church, we know that we're not blazing a new trail as much as we are going down and walking down a new walk down an ancient path. And so today we celebrate the historical and spiritual connections that we have with the people of faith that have gone before. The Cairo symbol also has a very interesting connection to a historical event, an ancient event. Now, please note that some of the details of this event may not be very accurate or we're not 100% sure, but it has remained in the historical uh, traditions of old. So it was in the evening of October 27th, 1312 AD, and Constantine was going into battle uh, the next day against Maxentius. It was called the Battle of the Melvillian Bridge which was an important route over the Tiber's river being the third longest river in Italy. The battle would determine whether Constantine or Maxentius would be the emperor. According to two contemporary historians, Eusebius of Caesarea and Laxentius, the battle marked the beginning of Constantine's conversion to Christianity. Before the battle, Constantine decided to pray just like all rulers would do before entering into battle. And so accounts by historians say that while he was praying, he received a vision from the Lord. And in this vision, Constantine saw in the heavens the Greek words that said, which means in this sign, conquer. Eusebius records that Constantine's entire army saw the vision. He then put the symbol that he saw on the shields of his soldiers. This event again spurred Constantine into a deeper study of the Christian faith. The symbol symbol that Constantine put on all the shields of the soldiers was this, the the Cairo symbol. As history records, Constantine went into battle and he won against Maxentius and eventually established his rule. He went on to make Christianity the state religion and no longer were Christians persecuted or the minority and they became the majority. They became the dominant state people and religion. Now, looking back into history, many people question uh, Constantine's move to mandate and make Christianity the state religion because a lot of um, evils were done in the name of Christ. The Greek letter chi is written with the English letter capital X, and the letter rho is like the English capital letter P, and so Chi Rho is formed by uh, superimposing these two capital letters Chi and Rho, or XP, uh, which is from the Greek word Christos or Christ, in such a way to produce this monogram. Archaeologists have found the Cairo symbol on coins and medallions and lamps and pottery pieces and grave inscriptions. It was even carved on the pavements in front of businesses on the doorposts of homes to mark whether this business or home uh, was uh, a home to a Christian. This symbol was found in the catacombs as mentioned in these underground burial places where Christians secretly met to worship God. The Cairo reminds us about Christ and how He is to be the focus and center of our lives, as Paul writes in Galatians two, verse twenty: "For I am crucified with Christ; I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." For Constantine, the Christ symbol initially became a good luck charm, so it was used, unfortunately, in many unChrist-like ways and political purposes for in the pursuit of power and control and dominance. And so we too have to be careful as we identify ourselves as Christians or as people of Christ that we don't live in ways that dishonor his name. Paul writes about this in Philippians 1 verse 15 to 18. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambitions, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So let's be vigilant to guard our motives, to guard our intentions and our attitudes, and to always honor and reflect Christ. And so before the what and the how, we should ask ourselves, why? Why am I doing what I am doing? The Cairo is the Christ emblem. It is the marker of Christ, and Christians of old have used it as their identity markers. And so the question for us today is, what is our identity marker? How are we labeled? What is the imprint on our lives? The question, who are you? Finding our identity is the pivotal pursuit of our generation today. People are in the pursuit of, who am I? Who am I? What is my identity? Let me ask you a question today. If I asked you, to describe yourself with three words. What would be the first three words that come to your mind to describe you, to identify you, to label you? We often think of ourselves or what others say about us as our identity markers. It's probably the primary way in which we self-identify ourselves. So what labels have you labeled yourself? Here's a question. What do labels communicate? When you look at a label, whether it's on clothes or food or on products or items, what do labels communicate? I'd like to share three things that labels communicate. Value, importance, and information. Labels communicate value by looking at an item Or by looking at the label, you can determine its value. Based on the label of a watch or a car or clothing, you can determine its value. Whether it's a Rolex or Citizen, whether it's a Bentley or a Buick, you can determine the value of an item based on its label. Importance. Label communicates importance. Uh, In certain circles, titles communicate importance. For example, the principal of a school, the CEO of a company, or the prime minister of a country. The third is information. Labels communicate information. Imagine going to a grocery store desiring to pick up a can of green beans. And when you go to the grocery store, none of the cans have labels. You won't know if you're picking up green beans or corn. Labels also on cans, for example, communicate information and information of calories and carbs and and fats and so on. Nutritional information that is very vital in determining what you're going to choose. So labels communicate value. It communicates importance and it communicates information now in life we have many labels some good some bad some labels are good for example maybe we are labeled a a husband or wife a mother father student son daughter friend uh, father husband but there's also political labels conservative liberal uh, progressive uh, libertarian there's other other labels that we may consider failure ugly hopeless useless worthless uh, rich poor educated beautiful handsome tall short unathletic, married, divorce, mistake, all these labels that we could think of that either we've labeled ourselves or we've labeled others. As human beings, we tend to treat people in certain ways based on labels or identity markers that we've assigned to them. For example, if we've labeled a person wealthy, we may unfortunately treat them differently than someone else based on their wealth. If we've labeled someone addicted or dirty or annoying or uneducated or a mess, we may be less inclined to stop or converse or help or talk, or we may even show less respect. This is very unfortunate, but it's the nature of humanity and the societal value systems that we carry. Do you know, back in Jesus' day, there were all kinds of labels that were considered disgraceful. For example, the poor, sick, disabled, blind, insane, demon-possessed, widows, orphans, runaways, castaways, refugees. They were all groups that were considered underclass. Some of these labels meant that the individuals could be ostracized or treated with contempt. And this, unfortunately, would be even socially acceptable. It was socially acceptable to ostracize people based on labels and based on their social conditions. Take, for example, the label sick. Depending on the type of illness, a person who had a certain sickness or disability or skin disease or blindness was marginalized in society and was not allowed even to enter into the synagogue or the temple and worship. And sometimes they were completely shunned. That's why you see when Jesus would walk, there would be sometimes uh, blind people on the sides of the road begging and looking for healing and food and some source of assistance. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he engaged with people that society had considered underclass. He even engaged with people that the labels that society gave were unwanted. And so we see the beauty of Jesus' as love to all people. He wasn't afraid to talk with them. He wasn't afraid to listen to them. He wasn't afraid to engage with them, provide for them, heal them. He wasn't even afraid to hang out with them for a meal. So the question for all of us today is, who has the right to label something? Now, what I'm going to quickly share, I learned from a very wise pastor, and he talked about three types of people that can label something. First is the manufacturer. Second, the owner. And third is the purchaser. The manufacturer, the maker or the creator of something has the right to label it. For example, when you look at a clothing piece of clothing, the person who manufactured that piece of clothing has the right to label it. Second, the owner. When someone purchases or owns a product, they have the right to label it. For example, I don't have the right to enter into your house and walk to your cupboards and start labeling your cupboards because I don't own your home. The owner has the right to label the products in the home. The purchaser, when you purchase something, you have the right to label it. For example, if you purchase a baseball glove or a backpack, you have the right to to label your name on those items. And so manufacturer, owner, and purchaser, these three people have the ability to label something. So who has the right to label you and I? The answer to this question has the potential to change your life and your willingness to embrace that answer also has the potential to determine the direction and the quality of your life. We all have labels. We, Some of us have labeled ourselves and some of us have been labeled by others. Labels are powerful things because labels lock you in and lock opportunity out. For example, if you were labeled uneducated or or dumb, you may be hesitant to pursue um, education or a a growth opportunity in your life because you've locked yourself in and locked opportunity out. If you were labeled a failure, you may be hesitant to pursue opportunities for growth in business or uh, a venture because you are scared to fail because you've been labeled a failure. You see, the wrong labels will lock you in and lock God out. Maybe your parents have said something to you when you were young, when you were growing up that made you doubt your, your self-worth and maybe your parents have said something very negative about you that you'll never succeed in life and those labels have stuck with you till today. Maybe you were sexually, verbally, emotionally or physically abused and rejected by your friends. Very often our personal identity and how we see ourselves have been shaped by our early experiences in life. What experiences we we experienced when we were a child have formed us to who we are today. And so I want to encourage you, I want to uh, share with you what God has for you today that you would be able to remove these unwanted and unnecessary labels to learn to see yourself as how God sees you. So who has the right to label you? Do you think it's your friends or your parents, a boss, a teacher, uh, a coach, a pastor? No, it's the one who made you, the one who owns you and the one who's purchased you. And you know who that is? God made you, God owns you, and God has purchased you with his precious blood. And he has the right, as Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, for you know that God hath paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And so it is God who has made us and owns us and has purchased us with His blood that has the right to label us, to identify us, and to mark us as His own. I'd like to share a demonstration, as I mentioned before. I love to do demonstrations to help us to connect uh, reality and spiritual truth together through, uh, through the physical objects that we see in life. And so I have this, this whiteboard, And this could speak to our lives. We're born, um, you know, without labels in one sense. We're growing in our infancy as as a baby, without the knowledge of what people say about us. But as we grow up, certain things happen in our our childhood. People say things, experiences happen, and we may actually um, form labels. And so here's one label that's very common to all of us. That may occur in our lives. And that is the label that we have it's failure. And so maybe you're here today and certain things have happened that you now consider yourself a failure. And you see these labels and you try so hard to remove these labels. And so we go through life trying to remove and trying so many means to let me see if I can get rid of this, this label. We we try things and we we hope that we can erase these labels and somehow they're still stuck in our minds. They're still stuck in our memories. And so again, we keep trying and, and this failure just lives in our minds and our hearts and we're not able to get rid of it. And it affects how we live our lives, how we see God, how we see others and how we function But as scripture, as we read, Jesus Christ has bought us and redeemed us and forgiven us with his precious blood. And so I have here another marker in red. And so we see how the precious blood of Jesus, even though we've tried so many things to remove these unwanted labels, has come and redeemed us. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that has taken away our sins and has forgiven us. And so now we see here, his blood has covered us and has redeemed us and now has removed that label. And not only has he removed us, he's identified us as his own. And so now we are a child of God. And so We see these, we are now a child of God. We are a son and daughter of God, labeled as his own. And so when the the world may try to come and take this label, it won't affect us. And then we may even have other labels that, that somehow come. Maybe failure happens again. And this time, even though other labels try to come over our lives, we know that God can remove those labels, and keep ourselves rooted and anchored in the identity as children of God. And so I hope, you, I hope to encourage you today to find your identity in Jesus, to find your identity in Christ, the Christ emblem, the, the Cairo, that identity marker. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, Do not conform or shape yourself to the pattern, something that exists before you of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, what is good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, labels can cause us to miss God and His purpose for our lives. The longer we carry a label, the less it describes our past and the more it determines our future. Did you know that before someone, before you arrived, someone else arrived before you to determine what was cool and what's hot and what's in. And our culture determines what's hot and cool and popular and acceptable and gives us this pattern. And God asks us, why would you allow anyone or anything else shape us towards that pattern? God wants us to pattern ourselves according to Him. Because the world has a pattern and we have to choose, are we going to conform to the world's pattern Or are we going to conform to what God wants? Did you know that when you allow someone to label you, you give them permission to own you and control you? Eleanor Roosevelt once said this, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. If you, for example, Label yourself or believe the labels of others that you're unattractive. You will live your life looking at people in magazines, trying to look like them. And we realize that they are controlling us. You know, there was a boy growing up in school who was very bright and who had very high marks. But his friends would call him a nerd and all kinds of other names. And this boy would try to intentionally make mistakes on tests so that he wouldn't score the highest marks and experience the name-calling and bullying that he experienced because he was academically gifted. He was allowing his class and fellow students to control him. You know, according to statistics released in 2010, about 160,000 children miss school every day because of the fear of being bullied. We know that bullying can take many forms. and One of the most common is name-calling, uh, either to a person's face or even behind their back, and very common today is known as cyberbullying. You know, I attended a to K-8 elementary school, and during the middle years of my schooling, I experienced a lot of bullying and name-calling. I was often made fun of because of my ethnicity or skin color or name or also because of jealousy of my success in academics and athletics. And there was a lot of demoralizing and demeaning things that were said and done. There were very embarrassing public moments, some so embarrassing and, uh, that I, I really can't even just share even publicly. And so all this bullying and name-calling were ways in, that were very degrading to who I was and uh, to my identity And through those experiences, they were very hard to bear at times, the the humiliating name-calling experiences. I still remember trying not to allow those moments to affect me and to determine my future. Fortunately, I was able to steer through all of these challenges. And the ironic thing is I ended up graduating as the class valedictorian in grade 8 in front of the same kids who were trying to bully, humiliate, and name-call. And so I want to encourage those who are watching, those children and young people, especially today, you may be experiencing bullying, um, name-calling, cyberbullying, and humiliation in front of your friends and classmates. And I want to encourage you to align yourself to the identity that Christ has for you. And don't allow the pressures of the people of the world to identify who you are. We can easily allow humiliating experiences to define us, deter us, or determine our future. Don't let them define who you are. Don't let them deter you from the path God has called you. And don't let them determine your future. Be assured, young person today, that God loves you, that God is with you, and God is for you. So the choice for us today is, what identity will you and I embrace? What people say about us or what God says about us? God is asking us to be transformed by breaking off these labels, these unnecessary and unfortunate identity markers. And he's asking us to be renewed in our minds to think differently. You see, once our labels are removed, we can pursue God's purposes for our lives. Believing negative labels, ones that we believe or that others have said about us, can cause us to miss God's purpose and misunderstand God's character. So where do labels come from? I'd like to identify five ways in which wrong identity markers may arise in our lives. The first is from what we've accomplished. Our success, our education, work positions and titles are often what we assume is our identity. What we own, our possessions, wealth, houses, cars, clothing. Third, what people think about us, what the world expects, the reputations that we may carry or what people have of us. Fourth, our past failures and mistakes. Sometimes the enemy will use what happened in our past to define who we are today. The guilt of the past may be still lingering in us, identifying who we are today. And fifth, who we think we are. Feelings about ourselves. Very often in our culture today, our feelings are our identity markers. What we feel about ourselves today, we often say, well, this is who I am. You know, when we live from a wrong identity, we are prone to disappointment, depression, and distortion. You see, disappointment with ourselves and others and God, our expectations are not met, and so we're disappointed. It leads to depression or insecurity. We're insecure because we start comparing ourselves with other people. We compare our identities with others. Social media is, is such a big world where it creates a lot of insecurities because we often see the scenes, the behind the scenes in our lives, we compare it to the highlight reels of other people. What we look on Instagram or Facebook and say, wow, look at them. And then we feel depressed. And then distortion, where we struggle to perceive reality. We live with this false identity, with unrealistic perceptions of ourselves, and our life becomes blurry. However, when we operate out of being children of God, we become whole and free from these destructive labels that cause disappointment, depression, or distortion. So no matter who we are and what we've done, we are God's beloved. The key to live out this identity is to find that freedom that we have through Jesus, Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things He's planned for us long ago. Do you know the dictionary definition of masterpiece it is a person's greatest work of art? It's the, it's the greatest work of art. So now when God describes you as His masterpiece, do you believe that? That you and I are God's greatest work of art. Some of you say, well, no, no, that God's talking about somebody else, not me. Well, I want to encourage you today that you are God's greatest masterpiece. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, He, God, has identified us as His own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment or the down payment that guarantees everything He's promised to us. You see, God has given us as His identity, the Holy Spirit in us as a down payment, an installment saying you and I are His and He's given us proof of that. And so in order to fulfill and fully live out God's identity, we must abandon every image or identity of ourselves that's not from Him. You and I are not defined by our feelings. We're not defined by the opinions of others or our circumstances. We are not defined by success or failures. We're not defined by the car we drive, the money we earn, the house we live, and, or w- the things we own. You and I are defined by God and God alone because He has identified us as His own. If we don't know who we are, then we're vulnerable to what other people tell us who we are. Very often, we incorrectly view our identity because we have an incorrect view of God. The great Christian writer C.S. Lewis once wrote, There are three images in my mind which I must continually forsake and replace by better ones. The false image of God, the false image of my neighbor, and the false image of myself. In his book, When God Interrupts, Pastor Craig Barnes writes this, The deep fear behind every loss is that we have been abandoned by the God who should have saved us. The transforming moment in Christian conversion comes when we realize that even God has left us. We then discover it was not God, but our image of God that abandoned us. And only then is change possible. We may go through the feelings of fears and uh, and insecurities that we've been abandoned by God, but we come to realize it wasn't God that who leaves us. It's the image of God, our expectations, our perceptions, our, our portrayal of who God is. And the conversion comes when we realize that we've created this image of God that needs to be abandoned and that we come to find out who God really is. And when we abandon that image, we can experience real Christian conversion and change. And we no longer live with the continual disappointment and holding of grudges against God. As I close today, I'd like to identify and share what does God think of us? What are the identity markers he gives of us? And Paul writes the letter to Colossians and summarizes the identity marker that God has for us in a key phrase. Colossians 1 verse 1 to 2, it says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae Grace to you and peace from God our Father You see from this verse Paul identifies three markers three identity markers family saints and in Christ family He uses the household terminology, faithful brothers and sisters, to express the family unity that we have because we have the same Father. The Holy Spirit is forming us to the image of Jesus Christ. So we share familiar family characteristics. We belong to one another. We are connected to each other because we belong to Christ. Second Timothy 3.15 says the church is the household of God. And so as the household of God, we provide a place of warmth and welcome, love, acceptance, and care for each other. John 1 verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those that believe in his name. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. I love this, what he says, And this is what we are. Isn't that amazing? This is what we are, the children of God. The second marker, he says, is saints. We we not only get a new family, but we're given a new identity, saints. In the Bible, the word saint is not about a VIP Christian or an elite Christian. It's those who have been called and set apart, made holy. Like the Latin word sanctus that our church is named after is means holy. That we have been called as a saint and chosen by God. And so Paul reminds us, who we are depends on whose we are. Paul reminds us, who we are depends on whose we are. And third and final, in Christ. Because we're united through Jesus in faith. When we receive him, everything that belongs to him, Belongs to us. Everything. Can you imagine that? That's unbelievable. We receive through grace what is Jesus by right. Sonship. Righteousness. Eternal life. Inheritance. Embrace of the Father. Every spiritual blessing, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, belongs to us because of Jesus. When God the Father now looks upon us, he looks and sees us through the lens of his perfect son, Jesus. Because the Father has immeasurable love for us and for his son we experience this great love. So just remember this, while details describe you, it is God that defines you. Details may describe you, but it's God who defines us. And so you are who God says you are. You are made in his image. You are in Christ. You belong to God as a saint, and you have a family as brothers and sisters. You are not what others people think, whether good or bad, and you are not what you think yourself to be, whether negative or positive. You are what God thinks you are. You are not chained to what you've done or what's been done to you. You have been freed because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And our identity isn't based on our parents or the place of our birth or our history or the possessions we own. Our identity has been based on our position in Christ that you and I are God's son and daughter. And so as we find ourselves identified as God's, as God's children, saints in Christ, we are his representatives to this broken world. We are to reflect who God is. And so that we can see as we look at this Cairo symbol, this identity marker, what is your identity and what is my identity? I'd like to close with this, this, uh, this story of um, what has happened. You know, the caste culture uh, in, of poverty and male domination in India has often found female children as regarded as a problem rather than a blessing. As reported in an Associated Press article in 2011, the census statistics in India shows that the ratio of female to male has uh, decreased, especially from age six and under, and declined because of the rising abortion of female babies and the intentional neglect of female children. The reality is far more costly for an Indian family to raise a daughter than a son. Families often go into debt, arranging uh the marriage of a female, by paying elaborate dowries. And so a boy, on the other hand, would bring to the family far much more wealth when they get married. They'd bring uh, the dowry, the money that would have. And so as a result, um, you know, women, unfortunately, were neglected. And so even in India today, hospitals are legally banned from revealing the gender of an unborn fetus in order to prevent uh, sex-selected abortions. And so part of the ugly fallout of India's gender crisis is that thousands of female babies have been born uh, with names that reflect neglect and disappointment of the family. And so names like unwanted have been fixated to these babies that were born. And an activist organization named Save the Girl Child is now promoting a renaming ceremony in which girls are officially changing their names and producing even a better future for them. In such a ceremony in North India, over 285 girls traded their names of shame for names of normal names, expressing joy and peace and hope. What's in a name? Identity. These girls have been saddled with the legacy of contempt, disgrace and disrespect. But the simple act of changing a name produces dignity and self-worth. Some of us here today need an identity change. Some of us need a name change. In scripture, we see God doing that for some people. Abram and Sarai were changed to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob was changed to Israel. Saul was changed to Paul. Simon to Peter. By being made new in Christ doesn't mean that he removes all that we are or we were, but rather redeems and restores and transforms us. That we aren't all we were and aren't yet what we will be one day. But we are now and walking in what God wants us to be in the future. The moment we receive Christ as our Savior, we are given a new name. We are called as beloved, a child of God, a saint in Christ Jesus. And so as you look at the Cairo symbol, ask yourself, what is your identity marker? Is it Christ or have you allowed the world to identify you today? Are you part of God's family? Are you identified as his child? I want to encourage you today to find your identity in Jesus. Would you join with me as we pray? Uh, there's a, a prayer that appears on the screen. Let's, let's pray this prayer together as an act of faith, trusting that God will help us to find our true identity in Jesus. Let us pray. God, help me to stop finding my identity in anything other than being your child. I am your masterpiece, your greatest work. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace, gifts, and goodness. I choose to walk in your purposes and passionately praise you. In your name we pray, amen.